The way I see it, the way I feel it, a nicer world just has to be filled with incredible stories. Our current world generates, you know, a few good stories now and then, even some great ones. But man, for me, a 10% nicer world has to have something like 200% more people making good livings, telling great stories. I mean, when I was a kid, I would tear through sci-fi and fantasy novels. Just, I can't even keep up at that pace today. Two, three, four, five books every week by my favorites. People like um, Piers Anthony, Philip Jose Farmer, Ursula Le Guin, Robert Heinlein, all these great fantasy and sci-fi writers. And on top of that, Dungeons and Dragons, right? Of course. <laughs> on top of that, comic books. So many comic books. Nerd, right? I know. This nerd right here, this is Todd Brilliant. I'm your host. I'm your host of the Nice Work Podcast, a platform of the Super Nice Club, where we're just trying to make the world 10% nicer by every means necessary. Check us out online, superniceclub.com, um, on the socials, including Clubhouse, at, at Super Nice Club. Just join us, please. The world needs us, and we need you. All right, back to comics. Back to comics. You know, nowadays, of course, comics dominate the big screen. There's, what, Avengers, Iron Man, Black Panther, all the big DC and Marvel movies. Uh, I'm, I'm not mentioning Wonder Woman because that last one just shouldn't be mentioned. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, gal. Still want to be your friend, but just no to that last film. The, <laughs> maybe not super nice. I don't know, super honest. And honesty is nice, right? Eh. Okay, so these are by far the most popular stories and myths of our time. Unless you count, uh, you know, world religions. And even then, there's an argument that if an alien showed up right now, not that they're not here. I mean, we know the lizard people are here. Got it. But whatever. If an alien showed up right now, they'd find uh, Spider-Man nearly as omnipresent and ubiquitous as Jesus or Allah. Which is why I'm so excited for this weird new cadence I'm doing. Which is why I'm so excited for this week's guest, comic book writer, artist, filmmaker, director, just overall creative madman, uh, Kare Andrews, right? He's worked on Spider-Man, Iron Fist, Thor, Hulk, Batman, X-Men, Star Wars, Spider-Man. Yeah, he worked on Spider-Man a couple times. Superman, <laughs> Wonder Woman, to name just a few of the major titles. He's also created a real favorite anti-hero of mine, Renato Jones, and a new series that I'm also into, uh, a, sort of a teen hero, Erratic, which is available now through a startup publisher, AWA. And we'll get into the new stuff and AWA in this podcast pretty deep, so just hang tight. Kari was the first recipient of the Schuster Award for Outstanding Artist for his work on Spider-Man, Dr. Octopus. Uh, as a director, his most recent film, Sniper, Assassin's End, hit number one on Apple Streaming. It's pretty cool. Number one? Yeah, that's top of the podium. But before we get to Kari, I want to read some of his words. I want to read this manifesto of sorts that he wrote that, that turned me on to him as more than just, you know, one of my favorite artists and storytellers, but as someone who's clearly as passionate about his craft and career, uh, his career as a creator in a way. It just resonates really strongly with me. I think you'll love this. You know, here we, if you don't, that's cool. You can get your money back. All right, so you hear this. <laughs> so you want to be a comic book creator. In a world of remakes and remixes, reimaginings and reboots, you have your own ideas. Redoing isn't doing enough. Reworking isn't working for you. So create. Create with fire and blood. Spit into the sky and birth something new. 
You're not chasing money or fame. You're chasing life. Likes and retweets in the sea of social media sludge, a programmer's trick to make you think you matter. But let me tell you something, friend. You matter. What you have to say matters. What's in you matters. So let it out. Create. Shore yourself up against the storm to come because they will come for you when you dare to matter. Those too afraid to live their dreams will try to kill yours, to make things even, a blood sacrifice to false gods. But as they tear your pages apart, remember to smile. It's not your dreams in their filthy hands. It's simply paper. And you have so much more to say, so much more than they can ever tear away. Keep creating. Create until you've built a pile of life so high the dead can't reach you. I'll meet you there. Wait for me, will you? I just have a few things to do. Kari. That's just great. The dead... I've long thought this, this, this idea that, that mediocrity more than misery loves company. And people almost reflexively will drag you down because if they're satisfied with their mediocre life and you dare to aspire... You dare to dream bigger. You know, your successes make them look bad in comparison. And that's not because they're bad people. It's a reflexive thing because they're comfortable. Because mediocrity needs to be surrounded by mediocrity. And if you dare to fly higher, <laughs> they're going to put hooks in you. And I know that you listening out there, some of you, it just, you felt that in your life. You know, those are the dead. They may not stay dead. You know, so it's not like they're terrible. But they're dead at the moment. Leave them behind. Anyway, that, that, that was my take on, on his manifesto. You get your take on it. I think it's fantastic. Anyway, so now for our anti-advertiser. Our anti-advertisers are super nice club members, businesses, doing nice work. They don't pay for the ad. Instead, they just promise to keep up the nice work. And, and in turn, that will pay dividends to you, the members of the club. And that's, that's really the case with Lunchette in Petaluma, California. Fantastic little restaurant. Uh, here we go. This is the ad. I'm just going to introduce it like that. At Lunchette, we believe eating healthy should feel like good sex. The kind you can't stop thinking about. The kind you just want more of. So eat your way to a joyous finish. It's super nice for you, the community, and the planet. I so agree. Best ad ever. Best anti-ad ever. Joel, Naomi, founders, lovely people. They have a wildly deep commitment to healthy, organic, local food, which is absolutely part of a nicer, healthier you slash community slash world. You know, a healthier you can't happen without healthy food, right? So put down the In-N-Out burger, you heathens. <laughs> when I lived up there, I made lunch at my go-to. Their mind and, and tongue-blowing salads made my day. Yeah, it said tongue blowing. Yeah, you know. Anyway, okay, you ready for Kare? Apologies that in this this uh, interview my audio is a bit weak. We had to use Zoom instead of trusty Squadcast, and, and Zoom just isn't for audio files. Ready? Okay, so turn off everything else, tune out the rest of the world, and drop in to nice work with Kare Andrews. Kare, Kare Andrews, thank you for being on Nice Work today. How's it going? It's going great. Thanks. And you are in, are you still in Saskatoon? Is that where you grew up? Or is that where you live? No, I grew up, yeah. I grew up in, Sa I was born in Leaf Rapids, Manitoba. I moved away when I was still a baby. Then I spent years, zero to four in Toon, Saskatchewan, art school in Calgary, Alberta. And now I live in Vancouver, 
British Columbia. I actually, actually just moved to the suburbs a couple years ago. Oh, you did? Uh, suburbs of Vancouver, yeah. I love Vancouver. When I was like 18, because years ago, I'm like, oh, this city. I hitchhiked up there. I had a great time. Uh, slept on a nude beach. Met a bunch of people. Uh, yeah. I think I also Jericho Beach. In a, in a church <laughs> because I didn't have any money. There was a, a place that, you know, you could just go. Anyway, I thought, All right, I'm going to move up there. That's the place. I'm going to move to Vancouver. And then you get back and you realize, like, they ain't taking your your broke 18-year-old ass up in Vancouver. You need to be able to have a job. You need to have income coming in. I was like, total disappointment. But Vancouver was, at one point, the future mountain, the, the place to go. Yeah, it's a nice place. You know, and if you're if you're interested in the entertainment industry, you either move to Vancouver or Toronto. And that's what I when I was in living in Saskatoon, I it was a coin toss really whether I'd move to Vancouver or Toronto and I knew one person in Vancouver. So that's how I chose. So let's jump right in. Let's jump right into this this incredible intro from your graphic novel, Renato Jones. It just really got me super excited. I read it already. It's top of mind for all the listeners out there. But so you want to be a comic book creator. What was the feedback? How did when you put that out there? Did you get a lot of feedback from readers, from people in the industry? I did. I mean, people generally liked it. I didn't really get any response, negative responses to it, really. But I mean, really, when I write those little manifestos, yeah, I'm really writing them to myself. I think is really what's going on. And Renato Jones for me was the first time I stepped out of kind of the big two publishers, uh, superhero comp publishers, and it was a big step for me and. I was just, I think I was trying to get myself in the right headspace to, to make this book because it was a bit of a risk and a bit of a gamble and it was a new, it was a new space. And I just, you know, I'm like the coach yelling at the team in the back room, only I'm the team. And then um, I just threw it in. I threw, ended up putting it in the, in the issue. I had actually written something else specifically for the issue. I think, I can't remember how it worked out. Oh, I know how it worked out. I was asked to do something like this for an Iron Fist book I did, and it was well received. And I thought, oh, I'll just do that again, <laughs> basically. <laughs> but I use again, I use it as a chance to like psych my try to psych myself up for myself for you know the task in front of me, which was the, my first creator own comic book. Yeah, I found that it was even though it says so you want to be a comic book creator, that to me it was a super inspiring call to like to any creative to anybody just to to be your own person to go your own way have pride and confidence, you know, in that. Have you found that, that people who are outside of creative industries have, have it's resonated with them as well? Well, most of the response has been from people who read it in the comic book form. So they're mostly sure. comic book creators or, or people who want to create comic books. Um, so I haven't, I haven't actually had a lot of people respond in a way that was outside of comic books, but the way I approach all this stuff is, like I both write and draw comic books, but I also direct some TV and film and I have these other, I've done photography. Like I have weird, I don't, I try, I don't really live as uh, one in one box. And I always look at the world as like many things at once. And so, you know, I, I, what I wrote there was in a comic book towards a comic book creator per se, but it was also to all the other parts of me or anyone else that, yeah, it's interesting creativity and just doing things. Cause I think, the hardest part about making stuff is, is the doing it like is the, is the starting. If you can get someone to help you start, or if I can help someone start, or if I can inspire myself to start, that's, that's the biggest thing is just starting. 
the second biggest thing is finishing. And those are the two, <laughs> in any form of creation, those are the two essential elements is the starting and the finishing. And both are equally hard. Everything in the middle is a piece of cake. Do you, I know for me, I don't know if this works for you, but when I envision, let's say it's a, a shot doing photography or a story or a script or something writing, in that envisioning state, it's perfect. I mean, it is a golden jewel, like, ah, oh, this is a beautiful thing. And I know that the finished product is never going to be that perfect, right? Because in the dream world, in your mind, it, it, it's unrealistically awesome. And, and that knowledge for me is what's intimidating. That knowledge for me is what keeps me from starting projects sometimes, knowing that it's never going to be as good as I want it to be. Is, is that part of what you're talking about when you, when you think about a hurdle to overcoming that initial resistance? to starting. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah, there's, yeah. I mean, just the, uh, there's so many hurdles, but yeah, one of them of course is the minute you start something is the minute it's less than you hoped, you know, that's a much more succinct way to put it. Thank you. Right. It's (laughs) like, I always look at creativity as instant failure. Like you instantly failed, like try to plot out, try to plot out a story on a single page, instant failure. But, but it's, through the failure, like it's like working through the failure is what makes, is what, is what allows you to manifest the thing in the moment. So if you can just kick open the door, I always approach anything this way. Like I'm never actually ready. I would much rather just kick out the door and find myself in the, in a blizzard and then address it step-by-step step because at least I'm in the blizzard. Like I would never go in the blizzard if I, if I knew it was gonna be that cold or that hard or that late at night, or I was that hungry or that tired, or I was going to, you know, get into that, that amount of trouble. Like I always just think like, kick open the door, start walking and then deal with the problems as they come and make sure you get to where the end of whatever you were trying to do is, even if it's a different place, like say you start walking to the store and you end up walking to a buddy's house, like whatever, like you need to, you need to complete that journey. So kick open the door, start walking through the cold, your toes are going to, maybe they'll fall off. Maybe get frostbite, whatever, just keep, you got to keep on going. And then if you can make it to the end, it's like the success is actually, it isn't the quality of the walk. (laughs) There's time in your life to make better walks. The success is just the beginning and the finish and everything else is subjective. And you may, I have so many projects that I hated when I finished them. And then I look at years back later and I'm like, oh, those are pretty good. Or I've had moments where I like, I really did it. And then I look back and I'm like, oh, that was a huge failure. Like the, the subjective part of that journey will go on with or without your involvement. It's, you don't have to worry about that. I don't think. Yeah, that's a good point. And when you finish it, the, the difficulty with finishing is, is often that now you have to expose this failure to the world, right? Yeah. I, if, if I yeah. finish this off, people are going to see what it is. Yeah. Every time you might feel a little bit like a fraud, like, ah, I'm not as good as they thought I was. Yeah. It's not like I have a secret that's going to get exposed that I was never as good as I told people I was. It's more like I hit these limits in real time to myself. And it is personally humiliating to not be as good as I think I can be. You know, it's like this weird... So it's almost a self-flagellating rather than the public shaming. It's me in a dark place with a whip, just, just drawing blood. Uh, <laughs> that's the process, right? That's how you do it. So. Yeah. Have you finished a book or a film and thought, yeah, uh, that's, that's awesome. 
No. No? Okay. <laughs> Do you expect to ever Never. get there? I hope not, because there's this really? part of me that thinks like, you know, the the minute you're happy with your own work is the minute is the minute you've have you 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 can't get any better. Like you you just I got I hold on to this I'm really hard on myself when I do things, and I'm, I hold on to it as a as a feature, not a flaw, because I do think that there's some inbuilt mechanism that makes you better. And so if you if you are ever satisfied. Like you'll never see, I have a, you can see because I'm talking on video, but right. if anyone's ever in my office and they'll see I have a bunch of art on my wall, none of it's my own. Like I, I would never trust an artist that hung their own work. You know, like it's like you need to inherently be ashamed of everything you do because it's the only way that will get you to that better place. And you need to prove to yourself every time that you're not as bad as you were that last time out. That's, that's how I look at it. You're almost as hard on yourself as this guy. <laughs> a tired fist you know you're reminding me reminding me of a little bit of renato jones in there too huh there's a there's i i listen i love i love kind of like the the self-loathing uh, uh uh characters that try to that try to do good things and often fail that's for me that's the sweet uh, that's the spider-man sweet spot that i love so much um we've been talking i've introduced you primarily you know as, as a comic book creator and I know a lot of folks out there, Super Nice Club members, you may not be really into comics, or you might think of them as that thing that you looked at when you were a kid. You're probably aware that graphic novels are the source now for a lot of films. But to me, well, you said, matter of fact, let's, let's talk about you. Uh, you said, and I like this, comics are the most direct medium of visual storytelling to the world. And it provides the unadulterated spark of life that a giant machine like film or TV needs to harvest because by the nature of what that machine has become prevents that spark from ever happening. And, and I love that because I think that comics and graphic novels, it's hard to convince people who aren't into them of the caliber of the storytelling and of the writing that, that is in there. I find a lot of the very best stories that I read in graphic novels. How do we convince more people that the storytelling in comics is on par with anything out there? Well, I think part of, part of the comic books are in this weird space because it's a devalued art form, but I think that's actually a feature, not a flaw, because once you value an art form too much, too much, like say film, mm -hmm. what happens? Everyone wants to partake in that valued art form because they want to feel valued. And then you end up with this giant corporate mechanism that makes billions of dollars. And the artists making that art are outnumbered, not just financially, but just by bodies in the room and, and they may not even have the final say in their own art. So it's like very strange it's a very strange place. So I've always felt that I don't know if comic books needs more readers or needs more fans or needs more hurrahs. I think the fact that it's kind of niche is, is actually inherently good for the art form. And the weird thing that's happened in comic books is we've always, you know, when I was a kid, I was always like, these characters would make the best movies. Why isn't anyone making these movies? Be some, right. These would be amazing. Yeah. Uh, well, we've proved that's true. And now for the past, I don't know, 10 years or so, the biggest movies have all been superhero movies. And you would think, oh, that would make comic books more interesting to just the every person. But in fact, I think it's done the opposite where it's taken the energy that was in those pages and it's put them into a different medium and spread them to the masses. And it's actually devalued comic books even more than they were before, which is again, a very strange thing. And you could say that's, that's kind of sad, but I actually think it's a, it's, I think it's a, it's a feature, not a flaw, meaning that now 
some of the people that do comic books are just so unique and good at that particular thing that having it be a small space can let them do that work at a super high level than if they were overvalued with lots of input and lots of money at stake. And, you know, those comic book creators that want those things have moved over to film and television. They are no longer in comic books or the people that are trying to get into film and comic books through comic books. Um, they're, they're on their way. They're out the door. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, seeing it as part of the path. Toward yeah. Path, yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, I, like, like uh, Dickens was once a, uh, Right, like a serial writer, his work appeared in newspapers. That kind of it was like the soap operas of its day. It was de- a devalued art form. You know, uh, Shakespeare, right? right the, so it was pleasure for the masses. They weren't right. like they they became people judged the content later uh, as something that was worth remembering. And I always, you know, as much as I am hard on myself, I think the medium being hard on itself is good. Is kind of good. Like I like I like that to do comic books. You have to be kind of independent and weird and have like, you're not chasing after money. There were easier ways to make money, but it's, there's kind of a weird goodness about that sort of imposed humility. That is, I think helpful, healthy for the, for the work. So you were saying a minute ago about the film industry and and maybe I didn't get this right, but you're talking about the sort of ratio of, of artists and creatives to executives and industry and just the size of the industry. You said they're kind of outnumbered. Would you say then, was that sort of inferring that within the comics industry, there's more balance there? There's just like a, a to, um, as far as artists to non-artists in the, in the whole of the industry? Oh yeah, completely. Like, so, you know, I've directed movies that are relatively small budgets, like, you know, one to $5 million budgets. You know, I've projected a few of those. And even in that, even in that situation, you have a studio, you have an executive producer, maybe a financiers, you have a producer, you have sometimes have a writer producer, sometimes you have um, just uh, other people who feel they should contribute to the success of the project because everyone's excited about that project because it's film, not because of the content of the product itself. So may, even if the story is some small niche story, the fact that the medium is film makes it more important to all involved and everyone wants to say, and everyone wants to like, you know, have a, have a little poke at things. But at comic books, I'll work on the Spider-Man, like the biggest characters in the world. And the amount of people I have to collaborate with is less than a handful. Like I wrote and drew Spider-Man Reign and I had one editor and that's who I talked with. And he, Axel Alonso, he, he ended up running the company and now he's doing this new company, AWA. But, you know, he was nothing but just supportive. He asked me a couple of questions, but then he just let me go. And like, that's not unique for me in comic books. I don't know about other people, but for my, my career in comic books has been nothing short of just editors empowering me to do the work, not trying to latch on for some kind of gain or, or some kind of status or, 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 or whatnot. Like it's, right. it's a very strange thing, but there's a flip side because in comic books, because the teams are so small, you cannot aggregate the risk where in film, if I'm directing a TV show, I'm directing two episodes of, of a season of a TV show. If those episodes fail, well, I didn't write them. It's not my show. These aren't my characters. I didn't act. I didn't make the movie. I didn't, I didn't have final cut in the edit because I'm just a, a TV director. Like I can, I can just not, I can just say I did my job and walk away. And, right. and um, in comic books, you wear it all. Like you get to wear the failure. But I also, I think that's a feature, not a flaw. Like I think when you rob someone of the chance to wear their flaws, 
you rob them of the chance to actually succeed or, or have meaning in the process. So I don't know. It's a, it's a very strange, it's a strange beast. I love jumping back and forth between directing and making comics because it's, it's so they're so different. Yeah. And I would have just sort of assumed, I think, being completely ignorant of the interplay between comics and, and um, Hollywood that, that a big, like Spider-Man Reign, right? Big, influential, one of the top Spider-Man stories of all time. I would just sort of assume that there'd be somebody maybe from Marvel, you know, the studios kind of breathing down your neck a little bit to make sure like, hey, is there, is there a potential here to do something in the films with that? And, you know, that you'd be under some sort of constraints. It sounds like they're not even in the room at all. Yeah, it's the, it's the, this is the weird sneaky secret of comic books. The weird sneaky secret of comic books is like you said in that quote from mine, is it's, it's that spark that drives the multi-billion dollar machine. And it's, an, it's a fairly unregulated spark that people, even people in their own companies, like you don't have Disney executives micromanaging the comic books because to them, the comic books are just a thing the company does. And then really they're interested in the movies and maybe they'd love to work on one of their movies. You know, so, so it's like right. this weird thing, but those in, most influential comic book stories are the ones that trickle up and ignite, say, Captain America Civil War or like all right. the, the, the most the Avengers Endgame, like the best comic work explodes upwards into the different mediums like film or video games or, or whatever. But they, they only have the power to do that because they're so unregulated and because it's just like pure creative, like just like pistons firing of like handfuls of people, like just going, doing their thing and like taking a shot and taking a chance because they're so cheap to make. There's no need to regulate them. Right. And by and by this weird accidental flaw, when you do something in comic books that's super creative and people respond to, it it fires up the pole and now that spark will drive the multi-billion dollar machine to to make whatever it's gonna make. Now, if you're a, an actor or a director, you're involved with say, you know, Endgame, Civil War, any of these films and arcs, they're getting paid quite a bit of money, right? From that that little spark down below generated a whole lot of capital. Is there any mechanism for any of that money to go back down to the original creators no <laughs> i mean i kind of figured as much i wasn't trying there to is, set you up i thought maybe okay, so, so te technically technically there is technique technically and i'm not really allowed to talk about it because you're not supposed to you got to resign these agreements right but it's the amount of i'll tell i'll tell you this one of the reasons why a very famous comic book writer named mark millar left marvel comics is because according to him just according to him i have no inside information but according to him he made less money off of his comic books that were the comic books used to inspire some of that first wave of Marvel movies than the caterer made for one week of filming. So it's like he left Marvel comic books, created his own superheroes uh, like um, uh, Kick-Ass or Kingsman, all these things. And then, and then Netflix bought his company for I don't know how many zeros, multi-millions, a, a multi-million dollar a deal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> but again, it's a weird thing because the problem is if you could, if anyone who worked on those characters could generate significant amounts of income from doing these stories, they would become overvalued and then the process would be corrupted. It's a very strange, right. it's a very strange thing. Like it's, I don't know. You feel a little bad sometimes that some of these creators aren't getting what they deserve, quote unquote. But, but if they were, then you would have a lot of people just after that, not 
then it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be this pure spark of creative power. Like it would be something else. It'd be something different, you know? I don't know. It's a strange industry. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I hear that. I don't, I don't have the answer for it, but I get it. You know, I definitely get that, uh, you know, money corrupts. It's just, there's how it goes. It definitely corrupts creative process. Typically, typically, you know, yeah. just in any field, you don't usually see wildly wealthy artists still creating really interesting stuff there are exceptions of course but across yeah. to, to make an entire industry uh continue to thrive with a, a spigot of uh you know ducats i think it would be a difficult thing to do um, yeah like you want to be hungry you want to be hungry you know and so some people can yeah have keep that hunger because maybe the hunger go maybe it's maybe you're uh Steve Jobs and that hunger is like you're actually insane and you just you actually have these ideas to like force the world to conform to your own insanity and you make amazing products in that and no amount of money will ever satiate you and you're building right. yachts with a thousand iPads bolted into it's like a each porthole like but that, that, that's that? that's a he oh I don't know if he did that but he, I heard I heard he had the, he built the super yacht it was completed after his death and his wife finished the job and they had um they had like something like hundreds of iPads in, in every available place in that super yacht. But I don't, I don't, I don't have to, I have to research. I have to go back and read whatever I read. So listeners, if you've ever been on uh, the Steve jobs, uh, super yacht, we'd like a little bit of clarity around that. Send yeah. in your photos. Awesome. Wonder who owns that. Who owns that yacht now? Well, though, here's what I always wonder is like, you know, do they upgrade all those iPads with every new version? Is it, is, do they have the, you know the iPad oh, right. Pro. So, what's your job? Oh, I update the uh, I update update the iPads on the super yacht. <laughs> I'd imagine I, a super yacht could could be kept maintained on its own for you know a decade with just keeping it running. But if all of a sudden you have this integrated platform that needs by design is upgraded every year in multiple versions with multiple updates, that would be a problem. Yeah, I'm thinking maybe Jobs could afford it at the time. Probably. Yeah, yeah, Probably yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. Another thing for people who, who don't follow comics, they might assume that often if you if you pick up a comic, you might assume that often the person who wrote it is the person who drew it, right? They, and so that's like when I grew up, when I grew up in the in the eighties reading comics, you know, you have your favorite, you have your favorite writer, you have your favorite illustrator. Sometimes super geeks even have their favorite, you know, inker and all that kind of and these teams, right? Oh, did you see the such and such and so and such? You are one of those kind of rare birds that is a writer and illustrator. Why isn't this more than norm? You know, is that uh, just because not a lot of people possess those, those twin talents or is there something in the industry where they prefer these talents to be separate? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's, I think there's a lot of different ways to answer that question. I think so in the 80s, we're probably same age-ish maybe. In the 80s, um, there was the emergence of a writer artist like a Frank Miller or a Howard Chaikin or the, some of these names. Like you might know, your viewers might know Frank Miller from like the Sin City movies or 300 or whatever. There was this wave of writer artists which were very successful and very popular. And then they kind of went away. And what happened was the industry started to revert more towards a separate writer is a, is a separate penciler who does the pencil art, a separate inker who traces over the art and ink, a separate colorist and a separate letterer. And it's really just for speed and efficiency. And there's a lot of mechanical reasons, but I also believe the world started going that way too, where every doctor became a specialist or started to become a specialist. Like there's very few jobs now that you are expected to do kind of like more than one thing. And I think directing is one of those jobs, which is why I like it because to be a good director, you should, 
be able to edit. You should be able to shoot photography. You should be able to act a little. You should be able to like, you know, do many different things, uh, production design, whatever. You should be able to do a little bit of each thing to be a good director. And in comic books, I've never uh, believed in these separate jobs. Like I do like working with writers that are not myself. And I've had some great experiences with some of these writers, um, whether it's Mark Miller or um, Warren Ellis or Zeb Wells or whoever, a lot of these, these guys that are comic writers, because it, it's, um, it lets me work with, interact with a voice that's not my own. But I also write and draw a lot of my stuff. And there's a strange thing that happens when you are the writer and the artist you get to control that process like so directly because when you work with a writer, just like say an actor works with a script, you're given words from someone else. It's like someone else tells you a story and then you take that story and then you tell it to someone else. So if you're yeah. drawing a comic book that someone else wrote, the writer tells you the story, then you like, okay, I think I know what he wants. Now I'm going to tell my friend this story with, with, with art. So it's like it adds levels of explaining and the story itself becomes inherently one of, of retelling. So you're retelling that same story. And in a good, and the good version of that is like, it gets more crisp, more precise, more punchy because through a series of expert hands, that same story has been retold five times and each time it gets a little bit better and a little bit funnier and a little bit crisper. But you do lose this weird sort of thing that happens when you're, when you are writing and drawing the same story through one voice only, it's this, there's this weird tone that comes to the work where you're actually manifesting the thing in the moment and no one else is having to re-explain what that crazy thing you did back there was. And so sometimes these stories can get a little dreamlike, they can get a little weird, they can get a little bit like the pacing can get a little off. It can feel a little bit um, metaphysical. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But there's no other way to get that sensation than to write and draw that story yourself. So if I tried to take my work, the book I just did, writing and drawing myself, and I tried to do it traditionally, like I tell it to another artist and he draws it, they would just be retelling my story and maybe you'd get a little punchy and a little crisper and a little more cleaner, but it would lose that just like raw creative thing that just happened in front of you. Right. You know? Yeah. No, that's that's uh, it's a great answer. I, I like it. I, it's it's probably why I, I get drawn to writer artists, you know, a lot. I, I get drawn to a lot of different types of creators and a lot of great creative teams. And you were talking about that sort of dreamy metaphysical thing. I, it's why I love some of um, or most of like Jeff Lemire's work, even though yeah. you know he's working with different artists. But and these are things that don't get made into movies. Things like um, what's one that he did. Uh, he did one called Underwater Welder, and it's just this sort of slice of life story that's a little bit weird, a little bit different. It's this hockey player, and like these to me are great films, but I don't know what studios are going to take a risk on something that has that kind of a weirdness. But that's the magic, you know, with the right director, that magic becomes a truly memorable, incredible story on the big screen. At least it does in my mind. At least it does yeah. in my mind. At least I'm like, God, I would love to write that. Script, yeah, you know, well, I think you could I could do quite it very very easily too, like a, a writer director. So if you took a Quentin yeah. Tarantino script and had Tony Scott directed it, uh, you would get um, uh, True Romance, which is a cool movie, but it's definitely not a Quentin Tarantino movie. Right. Yeah. It's like a different, you know. It's it's like he took that weird script that Quentin wrote and then re-explained it in a more traditional way, 
and, you know, reshuffled some of the weird things in the script and made it a good movie. But the strength of Quentin Tarantino's work is that he maintains the weirdness in his scripts and then he manifests it in front of your eyes as a, as a director. So, you know, it's like a different process than David Fincher, who just has a hundred takes of a script that three other people wrote and she's got two editors working simultaneously and he's trying to get the most pristine thing he can ever think to make. And you have Quentin Tarantino, just like Leonardo DiCaprio shooting some guy with a flamethrower in a swimming pool. Like it's a different, it's a different, it's a different beast, but you want both, right? Like you want you both do. to exist. Those are great. Those are great references. You know, they're both amazing. Fincher. I mean, these are two of, of the best. Speaking of these sort of type visionary type people, I do want to use that as, as, as sort of a segue into this stud, I think he's a friend of yours, Axel Alonso, who has launched a new publishing house, Artists, Writers, and Artisans, AWA. AWA. So if you're into comics, get Marvel, DC, Image, all those. There's a new, there's a new company on the block called AWA that I want you to check out called Artists, Writers, and Artisans. Go look at their catalog, find them online, sample them. Start with, start with uh, uh, your new book, which is Erratic. Right. What are we? How many you got? Five, six, seven. How many are out? There's going to be five when it's all said yeah. and done. The third one just comes out in uh, very soon. Very soon. It's off by four. No big deal. It's a small yeah. number. <laughs> it's a small number. It's only off by four. Uh, so that's erratic. Talk about erratic a little bit. That's uh, yeah. teen based, right? A little bit like teen character. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. So the thing with the, uh, so Axel left Marvel Comics and started his own company, this new thing. He got some, uh, a whole bunch of money, raised a bunch of money and, uh, jumped in and uh, he, I always have a great experience working with Axel. Like I'm a bit of an oddball creator. And, you know, when you find a good editor who will enhance what you do, you want to follow them wherever they go. So he offered me a project and I said, sure, let's, let's do it. And the thing with AWA is they wanted to create a new superhero universe that wasn't Marvel, that wasn't DC, but was still a superhero universe. So they got J. Michael Straczynski, who like is a very famous Spider-Man writer. He created the TV show Babylon 5. Um, he wrote, I uh, think, The Changeling. A uh, very well-known, respected, great writer. Um, he created this, uh, this conceit pre, pre-COVID that there's a global pandemic and uh, it kills a lot of people. And if you survive, you'll probably get superpowers out of the deal. Sweet. <laughs> and then it was released during COVID, which is a very strange experience. Uh, anyways, I was asked to create a book to live in that universe, again, pre-COVID. And so I was kind of working my head around it. And then I was still re- still creating that book during COVID when COVID hit. So it was a very strange way to interface with the world, the real world, by <laughs> trying to create a fun, poppy superhero created from a global pandemic that killed a lot of people. It was a very strange experience. So Erratic lives in there? Is this Erratic that lives inside that? Yeah. Okay, so how many of the AWA titles live inside that universe? Uh, Well, mine was the first kind of secondary book. And uh, there's another book coming out by Straczynski. Um, The name is uh, out of my mind right now, but there's going to be a few of them. It's going to be a universe. So it's like, uh, I definitely wanted to make a, live in that kind of Spider-Man space of like, a archetypal up poppy kind of like fun adventurous but a protagonist that may you know maybe has a not the hard easiest life is a bit of a challenge with the broken family but like you know kind of like still make it kind of fun and kind of interesting and 
like reevaluate that archetype of a teen superhero with in a new way. <clears throat> so kind of like re- yeah. so, explain the setup with, with the, the, the limitations on the power here. Oh yeah. Well, I just, I, you know, I didn't know what to do. Right. I just knew the kind of creator character I wanted. And I have, there's been this weird thing in superhero comic books lately where a lot of these superhero comic characters are, are, aren't that archetype that we've just think of when we think of like when we were kids, like they aren't, there's a lot of like people who wear street clothes and like, you know, they have, I don't know. They, it's like a very, a lot of different ways of doing it, but I wanted to, I thought it's, it's in today's world, it's actually subversive, sorry, subversive to revert back to a mainstream hero, kind of the hero that you could have on your underwear if you were a kid or the hero yeah. that could also exist in, I don't know, just the, just the, that kind of pure purity of a, just a pure superhero. And so yeah, I, I just, boots. Right. Capes and boots. Yeah. I wanted a costume. I threw I wanted powers. I wanted like an animal based power. Like I haven't seen an animal based uh, superhero in like 10 or 20 years. Like they just don't make them anymore. So I just threw that into the universe and it all kind of came back at me like at once that erratic, then he could be kind of a rat. I could give him like energy powers. I can make him a suit. He can do all kinds of like, you know, it just feels like a very, <laughs> very like pure archetype. Um, and then I thought it would be fun. Like I've, I've never, I've always been more drawn to Spider-Man that is constantly getting his butt kicked, constantly up against things he can't overcome as opposed to Superman who could do everything and he's a God. Right. And I like limitations. I like when things don't work. That's why I love um, Daredevil as a kid, I think. Yeah. I, that, he was my guy when I was a kid was Daredevil. You know, talk about a limitation. He's blind. <laughs> That's <laughs> a big one. <laughs> Anyway, He's a blind sorry, lawyer. Go ahead. So, so I, w- I don't know if you've been this way, but like, you know, especially not in the past few years when there's been more batteries and charge stations, but I have so many memories of like having my phone, being out in the world and having the battery almost dead. And you're either waiting for a call that you need to get, or you're waiting for an email that is like very important, or you're just lost and you need those maps to find your way home. And the battery is just like almost dead. And just the stress of that situation. I thought, well, that's perfect. What if your superpowers were like the world's crappiest cell phone. And every time you use them, it's like your charge cycle only lasts like 10 minutes. So I thought if you could do amazing things, but only 10 minutes a day, that's, I haven't seen that before, but I can relate to it so much. And I thought, well, those are the, if those two things come together, you have to do it. Like that's just, you have to make that happen. So he has energy-based powers. He, he like, basically he's like a human capacitor, like a cloud, right? The cloud absorbs energy until it expels it in lightning. And so he absorbs energy from the earth, kind of like a Tesla kind of deal. Like Tesla yeah. had these ideas of building energy towers to draw energy straight from the earth. So he draws energy straight from the earth. And after 24 hours, he can expel them for 10 minutes at a time. Uh, and that's it. And then, you know, he's either he stuck does. on a building or powerless or vulnerable or whatever, you know. Does he have to use them all at once or can he do it like one minute, 10 times? Currently, once he turns it on, it's very hard for him to turn it off. Okay. So he'll right. turn it on. It's like opening a spigot and just like, it's just got to, it's just got to go. And he, and he can't turn it off. Um, he may, okay. who knows, in the future, maybe he'll be able to uh, learn how to harness. Don't want to give it away. Okay. Don't want to give it away. I loved when I was a kid. I loved Ultraman on TV kind of for that reason, because, you know, he'd be fighting for about 30 seconds though. And then his chest would start to blink and you're like, what? No, already. You know, and he's got to, he's got to take the guy out before that blinking goes. I think he died. I think he would die if he didn't just lose his power. I think if Ultraman didn't recharge, I think he just, that was it. 
He was that's, my, I, that's that's cool. But speaking of Spider-Man, I do want to ask you this. It just came to mind because you talked about Spider-Man and you're, you know, responsible for a lot of Spider-Man uh, lore. How many times are we going to watch an actor in the films like age out of the role? I mean, like with Iron Man, we fell in love with, with RDJ and watched him in the character. With Spider-Man, it's more like Menudo. Like, are they ever going to let him grow up? Like, <laughs> and, you know, is Spider-Man ever going to be like 28? You know, like, isn't he like a little bit older in the comics? Well, I think when Andrew Garfield played Spider-Man, I think I think he was 28. I think he was oh, 29. Was he? he was old, man. Okay. He was playing a teenager, but he was like almost 30. Yeah, he was, and, I know, but but Spider-Man was always a teen in the film. Right, 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 right. I'm like, and I'm just like, why does he always have to be a teenager? Can he can't Spider-Man ever grow up in the films? That's my question. And I'm well, not the answer definitively. Yeah. Well, I well, I created this book uh almost 20 years ago now called Spider-Man Rain where Spider-Man was this old man who had, who had abandoned being Spider-Man because Mary Jane died and he discovered he didn't have the power to save her. And if he didn't have the power to save the person he truly loved, maybe he didn't have the responsibilities that came along with it. So he just kind of like stops. Uh, and then something calls to him back again. So I, I think, listen, I think we, here's what's going to happen. Here's my prediction to you. You can listen to this okay. podcast 20 years from now. Okay. Maybe, maybe less, maybe 10 no sooner than 10 we are going to use up teenage spider-man in the film space it's just going to happen because that's what happened to comic books we've used him up as a teenager and then what do you do with these characters everyone loves we have to reinvent them in new ways that's what happened to batman and batman dark knight that's what happened in the comic books frank miller created this kind of like older version of batman and now it's starting to happen in the film world a little bit i think michael keaton is going to play an older version of batman in the film space so this will also happen in the Spider-Man film space. So, but it, it, not yet. People love Tom Holland too much. My kids love Tom Holland. Yeah. Got to wait till Tom Holland gets 30. When Tom Holland is 30, they're going to say, or he's going to say, I'm done with this character. We're all done with, with this version of this character, but we all love Spider-Man so much. We all want to make more money. What can we do next? It's going to be some sort of older Spider-Man character. Maybe, I don't know if it would be a Spider-Man reign because that book is so crazy. I think yeah. it would make people's heads explode, but it'll be something like that. It'll be something uh, something different like that. Well, for your sake, I hope it's Spider-Man reign. Plus, it'd be awesome to see how it could get done. Right. I, I don't, you know, it'd be fun. I wouldn't get any money out of it, but it'd be fun. Well, you got to direct it, man. You're a director now. You're the guy who would direct it. Come on. Oh, there you go. Well, there you go. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So when, 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 you, when you're growing up, uh, what was your leap of faith moment? When did you know I'm going to go all in on comics? And that was kind of a scary thing for you when you st stood at that, that edge and just went for it. Was there a moment that you can remember? Mm, not really. As a kid growing up, I was always very obsessive about things. So I'd constantly be drawing or constantly making movies or constantly be like just making models. And it was all kind of one thing. What, what more happened for me, there, there wasn't one specific leap of faith moment. It was it was, I wanted to do all these things at once. And the world was like, these are different things and you can't do all of them. You, the world was like, you can do one of them. Maybe, yeah. maybe you can do one of them. And it was so um, frustrating for me to have to choose a thing when I wanted to do like 10. I remember the, that I did have a moment where it's like, am I going to become like a computer animator mm. or draw comic books? That There's one point when I was 18 or something like that, that was the big decision of the time because computer animation was new and there was actually schools you'd go to and comic books there's no schools you'd go to but it was i don't know it was a very straight it was a, it, i just chose comic books because it was harder and 
went for it. And I, t- I tend to always just throw myself all into one thing. So I did that. And when I found success, I was like, well, that was hard. It was really hard, but it happened. Why couldn't these other things happen? So then I started buying film gear and started writing and directing shorts. And that led to features. And I'm, I feel like it's more, I'm constantly, uh, it's not that I'm, I'm less of a person where there's a, a, a thing that I finally make the leap of faith. It's like, it's more like, how do I figure out how to open that other door? Like I'm constantly trying to figure out how to open another door. Like I'd love to make toys or do a video game or like, I don't know, I get obsessed about things and I, I want to do everything and I have so little time. It's, it's, it's a bit of the opposite problem, to be honest. So for you- I don't know if that makes sense, but- no, it, it does make sense. Not everybody has to, has to, some people just leap and that's their life. They're just a series of leaps, you know, a series of moving forward. You don't necessarily have to you know, stop and, and consider each and every moment. A lot of people do though. A lot of people uh, have to make a decision, like, especially with creativity and creative careers. Am I going to make this decision, which is fraught with risk? And like, you know, I'm an illustrator that they don't make a lot of money but I love creating yeah. stories. So who gives a damn? Or, you know, I, I can go over here and, and be a lawyer and, and I know I'll hate my life or maybe, no, sorry, lawyers, a lot of what people call <laughs> being lawyers, but some people aren't passionate about it, but they know they're good at it, you know? And so they make it, they make a sort of that classic decision, which way do you want to go? Right. Uh, so I always just kind of try to figure out if that was part of, of your process. If it wasn't, that's great. But you, well, here's, here's what I'll say to, to relate to this question, specifically the risk thing is like when, when COVID first hit where I live, I was super sick, like the month before, maybe three weeks before, like deathly ill for a long time. And it had all like, if, if I was to be that way now, you would say, oh, this guy's got the coronavirus. Like you would right. just say it because it was, yeah. it was the, all the classic, but it, we hadn't, hadn't technically hit us yet. So who knows? But um it really freaked me out and my family out because I'm the, I'm the earner of the household or whatever at the moment. And it was, it became very, the, 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 the chances of me falling ill and not being able to like pay for our house or pay for our food became super real. And we became very protective both because I was still sick. Like it was really very weird. I was, I was given asthma inhalers. I was all kind of crazy stuff. And I just, you know, just got to keep going. But but the, the risk assessment that we had at a personal level was like, I felt like I couldn't leave my house. I mean, we were, we were on a lockdown and, but I was so, I felt so like I had to protect my health so much because I was I actually was still sick for a long time. Um, I just didn't leave the house. And my wife did the shopping. It was like, she right. was screaming at the groceries. And, and it, what, what's really weird is what happened to me was I, f- I started to feel less bold and less strong. And when people ask me how I would, Hey, how you doing? I would like start getting emotional, which is not normal for me. I'd like almost like almost in tears, like I'm, I'm okay. Like it was a very strange, very strange situation. And it was what I discovered was like, I was like, I can't live like this. Like I can't protect myself from this way. Like I felt like I was getting emotionally damaged from trying to protect my risk and I was like, that's, I've had enough. And then I just left the house and started doing the things I was doing before. I mean, in the approved way, of the, whatever right. it was, right. but, but like, it was all of a sudden, I felt like an immense emotional sense of release and relief. And, it, and I realized like, just like a, like a lightning bolt, like I need a high level of risk just to feel emotionally well. 
Like I need to constantly be on a trapeze wire of failure to feel mm. good. And that, so in my artistic life, I'm constantly like trying all kinds of weird stuff with an airbrush or acrylic paint or oil paint. I'm constantly risking failure all the time. And I found like what I discovered about myself personally was if I'm not, if I'm, t- if I, if I don't expose myself to enough risk, I just, I can't, I, I, I just can't, I'll fall apart. Like it was a very strange situation. So for me, it's like, maybe it's the opposite where it's like, instead of like the risk being a barrier to starting something, it was like, I, I think I maybe need it. Like I yeah. need that. I need to risk failure to do good work. Like if I'm not risking something at the moment, I'm probably not doing good work. And so I'm constantly trying to like give myself things to fail at to keep myself sane in some kind of strange way. That's fascinating. And fortunately you pulled out of it, right? Fortunately you pulled out of uh, oh, what, yeah, yeah, yeah. whatever yeah, the sickness yeah. was, but long-term, even medium-term sicknesses can really be depressing. They can be a wild oh, yeah. mental challenge. And then once you're, once you're clear of it again, you look back and go, oh my God, I didn't realize how low I was. Yeah. I mean, luckily I've been pretty healthy all my life. Like there's never, I've never, you know, I've never really had to deal with much besides like, you know, some kind of, you know, mono or something like, you know, something, <laughs> something you know. Mono, you know, making out too much as a teenager, then you get sick for yeah. a year. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Um, so totally. the super nice club insiders, they've got some member questions, by the way, listeners, if you want to ask questions of the guests in advance, you can become a super nice club insider, just text, uh, text, um, um, iron fist. Text Iron Fist to our community number, 310-421-0393. And then you'll get a little ping in advance before I do these uh, interviews. Today, I did it an hour before I did the interview because I forgot. And I got a couple of questions. First one sure. is from uh, Seth Chapel. He's in Davenport, Iowa. And oh, Seth happens to be an amazing puppet maker. He's got a company. Oh, cool. Called I love puppets, Korea, man. And he makes yeah, the most metal comics ever. That's <laughs> awesome. Like... Heavy metal, com- other comics too. Anyway, foam foolery in Iowa. That's Seth. Seth asks, which do you feel is a more viable art form, digital or old school ink to paper? And before we answer that, I love this question. I want to add to that because I have a huge thing for print, for like the tactile feel of papers, the smell of inks, hot presses, all that stuff. In addition to that, would you be okay with a digital only world of comics? Well... I've gone back and forth on this whole digital versus because it was used to be a bigger thing. Like is the future of comics digital? And for a while, it seemed like that was maybe the future, the exclusive future, but it's been so long now. And those digital sales are so small. It really still is the print paper comics that drive sales. And because people like to hold things in their hand, you know, like you want to hold art in your hand. It's like the difference between looking at the Mona Lisa on a computer screen and being there in person, <laughs> I mean, in front of your, it's the same thing with a book. Like, yeah. like I've tried reading books on my iPad and it's okay. It's especially if I need to read something quick, if I need it quick just for a project, I'll, it's very convenient, but it's not the same as holding a beautifully designed object in your hand and just immersing yourself in that object and like collect, like you can't collect digital files, but you can collect objects. Like there's something about re- reality and like real things in the real world but is that going to stay forever? Is that just, is that just uh, me and, and the future generations will have less of an attachment to those things? I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, but making not. art, making art is also the same thing. Like I was one of the first artists at Marvel to generate art completely digital. So I was doing digital paintings back in like hmm. 2000 when it was like a new thing and very few people could 
not that they, yeah, very few people were doing it at the time. And I was one of the first, and it was a way for me to like, kind of like peacock and be like, Hey, look what I can do and do things other people couldn't do. And, and then, um, I mean, flash forward 20 years and now most people are doing digital art, but it's opened up a space where a lot of people cannot do or aren't doing traditional art anymore. Mm -hmm. So I do a lot of covers now that are like with an airbrush, like an old school airbrush or like paint on paper. And now the way to peacock or the way I can peacock and the way I can like outcompete my, my peers is to revert back to traditional art making, especially for covers. It's like, here's something you can't do. And then like, (laughs) take out the tools of, uh, of the traditional artist, uh, and I still bounce back and forth. I mean, I, I don't know. It's just we, art's a weird thing where if you start to do a thing and too many people start to do the same thing, at least for myself, I have an urge just to do the next thing. Like, I just don't want to be, I don't want to be in that space that everyone else lives in. Like I'm constantly trying to like zig when, if I sense the world is zagging or, or the opposite, like I'm constantly trying to find a, a way to be different. That's back to your risk-taking MO though, of course, right? It's definitely related. I, I agree with you with, with the, like when I still from time to time take on work uh, doing a creative director on a project and I need an illustrator or graphic designer, actually, I will always, I, I'm always looking for the graphic designer that is a talented illustrator as well. Because there's mm-hmm. a lot of talented graphic designers on the computer, but I'm, I'm always preferring the person who can illustrate just because the process is so much uh, more fluid. We can just sit down, draw things out, get it together, you know, and I find that that type of uh, creative who can also draw, I, I just tend to prefer the, the, their work, even though the work is usually always digital. The end yeah. is always digital. You know, so if, if you're out there, you're young, getting into creative work and art, don't give up drawing. I know it's really easy on the computer, but draw, 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 draw like a demon, keep drawing. Yeah. Well, here's, here's just to wrap up quickly. And one quick more thing is like, what I find is like, if you can have basic drawing skills on paper, that's like a robust core level of expertise that you can pour it over to any medium, animation, graphic design, painting, whatever. But, but if you skip that and you just go straight to the digital tools as a way to avoid learning how to draw, I see so many in the film world, concept artists, that can't actually draw. And it becomes very apparent that they've learned to photo collage in a way that gets them work and they're working, Mm -hmm. but they will never be the best at what they can do because you still need those core drawing skills to like bring to that work. And so the best like digital concept painters are all badass drawers, like drawing pencil paper is like, it's like lifting weights. It's like, it's just that core muscle where if you try to skip it, everything else will fail. But if you can really draw on paper with a pencil, the cheapest materials ever available to anyone, mm-hmm. you can pour it over the same skill set to any digital medium. Yeah, no, I agree. And even as a writer, sometimes I wish, really wish that I could draw because there are times when I'm trying to fight my way through a scene and I'm envisioning it and I wish I could put down what I'm seeing in my mind just when I'm stuck. On paper. Right. I wish I could sketch yeah. it out from a couple of different angles and then kind of write to what I just drew. Is that, if that makes yeah. sense? You know, I'm like, oh, I wish oh. I could draw. So writers, everybody out there should, I should, you know, it's never too late to learn how to draw. 
I should no, to, to, no, totally. To, to, um, you know what's funny is like is when you watch gr- older people take some drawing classes, even just a YouTube video. There's also many YouTube tutorials now. Yeah. Is what you'll find constantly is how people are amazed that they can draw as well as they can. Like if you just walk someone through how to do it or follow a YouTube tutorial, people yeah. are constantly amazed. Like, wow, I didn't think I could do that. And it's like it's like a, I think most people can draw to a much higher level than they than they think they can just because they haven't done it in in you know a long time or, or haven't done it properly or haven't walked through the steps it takes to do something from stage one to stage five. Okay. So Chris Davis, Chris from Dayton, Ohio wants to know how and if growing up in Saskatoon influenced your work. Um, well, Saskatoon is like a giant small town. I think it has like a quarter of a million people when I was growing up there. And it was like, so it was a very interesting place. Cause it was so we had a downtown, but it wasn't nothing like a, Spider-Man downtown it was nothing like Manhattan. It was like just a giant small town. And we had horrible winters that were so cold and horrible summers that were so hot. It was just extreme weather. Um, but it ended up being a very creative town. Like you have a, you have a lot of artists and musicians who come out of there because there's not a lot to do there. It's like, you know, it's a prairie town, big prairie city. So it just kind of, created this weird space of creativity and it was like it it felt like a place where you could go from move away from which is what i did (laughs) like it wasn't like it wasn't like you don't move out of there out of shame or anything like like i hate that place i grew up out of it was like it's like i love that place but it was like it 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 felt like if that to this day that city feels like a childhood home that i would i would love to return to and like have a meal and then go back out to wherever I, wherever I, wherever I ended up. And I kind of like, I kind of feel when we're at a certain age, we want to leave the place we grew up and we want to go to some bigger and more exciting place, some city place with cities and lights and whatever restaurants or whatever. And that's really cool. But at a certain point, when you start having kids of your own, you want, I want to give my kids a place to move away from in a weird way. Like I don't want, and that's, I think that's why we moved to the suburbs. Like, I don't want to raise my kids in downtown New York city because then what's left, like where, you know, where are they going to, you know, they need to explore outwards. And if you're already in this hub and it doesn't feel like a safe, safe, a safe community and you, and you leave for danger and adventure. Like, I, I don't know. There's something, there's something, I've, I've, I value family like so much right now. And, I, and like, I just want to give my kids that opportunity to like go somewhere dangerous. How old are you? Raise them in some, they're like um, nine, seven and four. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, 10 years from now, I want them to like leave and I want to be very scared for them. And I want them to like uh, take on some risk. <laughs> yeah. Live no, some I life. Get Live some I get life. it. I am my 18 year old who is actually, this week's podcast guest. Um, I listened to a little bit today. Oh, did you? Yeah. So he's he did, 18 yeah. and he's about ready to go out into the world. And I'm super excited for him. I that. could hear it in his voice, man. He was yeah. like, I can't wait to go. I'm done, <laughs> with, I'm done with this place. <laughs> I want to live my life. Too. I mean, can you imagine being 18? You're already itching to go, but then you've got COVID on top of it. So you've been cramped down for the mm-hmm. last year. It's just like the, the pressure, the boiling point. It's huge. So I, no, I love I, it. I love like, it. The, 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 that boiling point, he's going to have a great life because listen, I already heard in, in your son's voice, uh, like just this kind of 
growing resentment towards grownups, resentment towards authority, resentment to where he is. And it's like all the things you need, all the things you need to just do your thing. You know, like you don't, you want to be uncomfortable and ready to just go and then and then someone just like, let's go the slingshot. Like, that's what you want. You know, yeah. you want someone to just be like holding you back. And then finally, and then the tight, the tighter, the drawback, the farther the drawback, the farther the shot. Like, I think that's good. There's going to be millions of 18 year olds shooting long distance, you know, oh, yeah. over the next six months. It's going to be. Incredible. Oh yeah. Like, listen, your job as a teenager is to rebel against whatever status quo is, is. And so if you're, if you're a teenager right now and your status quo is, lockdown, no physical contact. Don't try to go to the gym. Don't eat in public. Don't wear your, don't, don't not wear your mask. Even if you're driving yourself in your own car, like what, what, like there's gonna be some trailblazers created in this time. Like this can be some real rebellion in a, in a way that will enhance the world. Like when these teenagers get slingshotted out into the world, like I can't wait. I can't wait to see them tear down Facebook, tear down Twitter, destroy the government. Like I want them to just like just go, you know, like I'm excited yeah. to see what happens. Me too. Amen to that. And we, the cool thing is we get to see what happens real soon. We don't have to wait a long time. Like, <laughs> next co- you know, the next couple of years, they're going to be out there owning this world. Um, yeah. Real quick. I was trying to think of people with somewhat parallel careers to yours, you know, just in my limited uh, database creatives who worked in, in films and comics and, and who not only like you like demanded creative control where you could, where you can, but had the chops to back it up, right? It's one thing to say, I want to do it all. There's another thing to be able to do it all. And the answer was, was literally right next, was literally right next to Iron Fist on my shelves, which was uh, my collection of humanoid graphic novels by Alejandro Jodorowsky. Are you a fan of Jodorowsky? Is he somebody who you look at and go, that dude, he's 90 years old and still creating. And like, you know, I want to be that. Well, I don't, I actually don't know his work that much, Okay. but uh, I do know his work. And, and um, the one, the, one of my favorite documentaries of the last five years was the Yodorowsky's Dune. Yeah. Have you seen yeah. that one? Yeah, I have. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Like I love these, I love these troublemaker artists, these he like dissidents. Troublemaker. Go check out, troublemaker. Uh, Topo. go check out, um, what would you, yeah. oh, White Llama is pretty cool on Humanoid. White Llama is a little, a little iron fisty. I think in listen in this world right now, this world we live in, when there's like not just not just medical controls being imposed everywhere, but also social controls, people getting deep platform silence, shut out. You you can't speak. You better not speak. Like you better not say this. You better not think that. If you even if we even think you're thinking that, you're gonna get in trouble. Like this is the time for I think radical dissident artists to like just like make crazy stuff. Like if Yodoraski was in his prime today. He'd be get, he'd be kicked off Facebook. He'd be kicked off Twitter. He'd be oh, face, those, kicked those off internet. Year olds are going to tear all that down. Love it. I, I can't wait. Year olds are going to attack that stuff. Um, it's it's going to be really cool. All right. So my my challenge to you is to check out a little more Yodorowsky. That's my challenge to you. I for me, I feel like a kindred thing there. Maybe not you know in all ways, but like creatively, I get sort of the same excitement from both of you guys. So that's my challenge to you. Do you have a super nice challenge to the members of the community. We usually wrap these podcasts by um, having the guest just throw something out that people who are listening, members of the Super Nice Club and just people who have dropped in that are your fans, something they can do in their lives just to make their world or the world around them a little, a little bit nicer, a little step up. Yeah, well, here's what, here's what I have to say. I think, 
<clears throat> like just the title of your podcast made me made start to make me think like what is nice like what is being nice what is making nice what is doing nice and i think uh I think it's, it's, I think it's founded in the opposite. So in a very Jungian kind of way, like, you know, you need to acknowledge your shadow, like any solid object casts a shadow. And if you ignore or suppress the shadow, that shadow, that shadow will overcome you, which is why you have so many people who live Puritan lives doing crazy things like dark things. So I think it's like the way to think the way to actually become um, a nicer person is to like, is to dig into that is to realize this is like by definition, you can only ever hurt people the most or the people that you hurt the most by definition are also the people you love the most. Like you have to love someone really hard in order to be able to hurt them a lot, just by definition. And it's like, and you know, relationships come and go and maybe, maybe it's just, being able to survive the hurt that inevitably comes with that love is like, is the trick. Yeah. But I think it's like, it's like, I think it's just like, to me, risk is the, is, is the shadow. Like if you can find, if you can find one thing to risk today, Mm. I don't know what that is, but I think it'd be different for everyone, but risk, risk is the, is the, is the imminent failure. And often failure is that sense of like, I can't do a thing. And then when you, I can't do a thing, it's often like, oh, that's, that's an imposition of that shadow, that dark space, that space that you, that you push back of yourself. So you can find one thing. I don't care what it is. If it's like draw a picture, if it's like, give someone a call that you, that you just haven't allowed yourself to call. If it's reconnecting with an old friend that you betrayed so long ago, if it's like, whatever it is, if it's like, if it's starting to, if it's a write yourself a poem, like what, whatever that is, like, if you can find one thing, one small thing to take a risk at today and be okay with the failure, like have the failure be okay. Like not, not risk. I hope it, if it doesn't work out, if I, you know, not, not throw all my money at Bitcoin today. Like, but one thing that you can risk and be okay when it does not succeed, like create a situation that you will fail at and be okay with the failure. I think that's actually the way to leave the world in a better place. Yeah, I love it. And I love the way you frame it with the, with the question of what is nice, you know, and, and the shadow being that which must exist, right? For, for the light, for the niceness. And a lot of times people do ask like, well, what does that mean to be nicer? I'm like, hey, whatever, it, whatever it means for you. You know, it doesn't mean the same thing for everybody. And like, I am not considered historically by my friends, like I, I would never be in the top 10 nicest people at a party if there were like 11 people there, right? Right. Um, doesn't mean that I'm mean. I just, I'm not, I'm not considered like Mr. Nice. I never have been, which is part of why I do the club because it's an interesting space for me to explore. Like, how do I though grow and be a better person, you know? And it doesn't mean that you stop having fun. It doesn't mean that you stop making completely inappropriate jokes. You know, um, I typically have a wildly foul mouth. I think the only true jokes are by definition inappropriate. Yeah. You know? you know, I can't think of a funny joke that's not inappropriate. That your spirit's in the right place, that your heart is in the right place, that you're trying, that you would prefer to have a, a better world, a kinder world, and that you do right by others. You know, whatever that wants to be. For me, it's just kind of the golden rule, but not not yeah. reciprocal, not do unto others as you would have. Just do, just, just do unto others, just that part. Oh, it's, here's what here's what, here's what would be worse. The imposition of your definition of nice onto other people. Yeah, exactly. That's actually, that's actually, 
evil. That's actually the, the you know, a, a totalitarian authoritative control, a dehumanizing experience. Like if you're trying to impose your idea of nice onto other people, like it's not, what's weird is like nice is not something that you can project outwards. It's only something that you can like draw from inside, which is why, again, I think like the trick is a risk. Like if you yeah. can think of something to risk and be okay with failing, like, I think to me, that's like, that will generate that kind of relief that will, I think, create ultimately create a nice experience for you and others. Not a lot of growth. Maybe. So that's the challenge, folks. Maybe. If you take Maybe. the challenge, you accept the challenge, we'd love to hear about it. You accept the challenge, uh, um, just tag Super Nice Club in, in your, if you, if you happen to post it on social. Social doesn't prove that it happened, but I don't know how else. You can call me. You can text 310-421-0393. That's our line. You can call me personally, 707-235-1026. But one way or another, we'd love to know how it goes. All right. We'd love to know how it goes. Tag Kare. You know, let's just see. We'd love to need, know what this risk taking looks like out there in the real world. I got to figure out what my risk is going to be. So I'll let you know on that one too. And then lastly, very last, do you have, Kare, a question for me? You can throw a question at me. I'll do my best to answer it earnestly and uh, hopefully without rambling too much. Hmm. Well, I guess here's a question for you. Okay. Ultimately, out of this podcast, how, what's, what's, what's the, would be the best outcome of this podcast for you personally, not this episode of your podcast series of your series. Yeah. Oh, that's a, that's a good question. I was sort of lovingly harangued for about a year to do a podcast, mostly by my friend, Dave Savage. Uh, He just thought that it would be good for me. He thought I'd have a good time doing it. Uh, Dave, Dave's just one of my friends that kind of knows me better than I do in some ways, you know, like administer like a, a medicine that I didn't know I needed. Um, so I got into this begrudgingly. And once I got into it, that's when I started to learn what I wanted out of it. I didn't go in wanting anything out of it other than, oh, it sounds like a fun thing to do as uh, an extension of Super Nice Club. Um, so once I started doing it, I learned that what I'm getting out of it is probably a lot more than a listener's. I'm getting out of it a real interest in the guests and a real interest in the common thread between all of these guests uh, in in that um, everybody has a different way of arriving at their career. And everybody who's been on there has been in a career that they're also passionate about, right? That's kind of why I reach out to people. You're because not everybody's passionate about their career. A lot of people are stuck in their careers. And so I wanted to use this as a way to inspire people to maybe move towards uh, a better a better synergy in that part of their life. I think it'll make you happier. I've been lucky enough to have that for most of my professional life. It hasn't always been easy. And I've been broke for a big chunk of my professional life because I wanted to do what I was passionate about more than necessarily what I was good at, right? And then eventually become good at this new thing. So for me, what I now want to get out of it is, I think a continuation of this, just figure out if I can get better at it. So in other words, the the lessons that I'm learning, the inspiration that I'm having from the guests, because each time I get off of one of these calls, almost every single time, I'm fired up in a different way. Like, ah, I'm taking away this stuff from somebody whose work I admired. I want to do a better job of, of having that come across in the podcast, of getting better as a podcaster so that 
what I'm feeling on the inside, I can better ask the right questions and bring it out of the guests in a way that listeners are like, oh, yeah, mm -hmm. I'm inspired. You know, the best podcasters, the best writers, the best artists, that's what they do with their medium. You put it, you put it down, you know, you put the, the comic book down and you're like, oh, fuck, I didn't want that to end. Right. I want to get that good at podcasting while I'm doing it that people feel the same way. No, it's, it's yeah. I, I think I like yeah. it. I like it. Yeah. I always find that the like I like I, to, to, to me a pleasure to be here and, and it was yeah. and, and uh, but I would I would find that the hardest part in my head mm -hmm. as someone who kind of self generates work would be that the the always looking for the next guest like always looking for the next person to interact with in the space yeah, yeah. like not the interacting itself but like the hunt would the for hunt. me would be like oh. the part would be like oh and I've got now to the what point now where people are coming to me. And these, yeah. sort of, these reps of, of uh, there are people who rep people for podcasts and they're starting to email me saying, Hey, would you like to have so-and-so on and so-and-so on? So yeah, that is the hard part. And it's also, I've made some really cool friends that have been podcast guests. Like who knew, especially during COVID when it's impossible to reach out to people, you know, yeah. at least I know a couple of times a week, there's going to be somebody <laughs> and oftentimes somebody that I've never met before that uh, I get to talk to, you know, and, and the podcast is working. It's, it's, I'm not completely blase about it. I have goals and metrics and things that I want to hit challenges to myself and, and they're being hit, which makes me feel good. But then I will immediately compare and contrast with like, you know, Mark Maron or something. Go, what, what am I even doing? This is a joke. You know, every time uh, I feel like it's every time I release a podcast, I'm freshly embarrassed and feel like it's, ah, this sucks. But then people yeah. you reach out and go, I liked it. I'm like, really? Did you really no, like but that's it? The healthy, that's the healthy <laughs> response, man. That's like, that's like when I release a, a book, I'm always super embarrassed about it. And like, oh, like because yeah. it's the, that I think that represents, that represents you knowing that there's more to do. Well, it's all about um, the success or failure is usually not on the guest. It's always succeeding because the guest is always earnestly showing up and saying and answering the questions, right? About their career and their life. So it's on me to ask the right ones and not to step mm -hmm. on the guest and make sure that the information gets across I, and, and to get out of the way. I want people to listen to Kari, not me. As I say, after like five minutes of extemporaneous. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, thanks for the question. I appreciate it. Uh, and I appreciate you being on the call. I appreciate you talking uh, today and, and relating all of your experience and expertise uh, in the comic world, in the film world, which I also real quick, any films on the horizon, that you're directing anything coming up uh it's always stuff i'm working on uh the last film i did was released this summer sniper assassin's end starring tom berenger was that like reached, the eighth one that was that the eighth series? one okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah it hit number one on the us itunes which is very exciting that uh cool. yeah <laughs> so right now i'm you know i've got some stuff in the works but but uh nothing that i can talk about at the moment all right well i, I look forward to finding out i'll definitely you know be following it and, and catching it all awesome Hey, thanks, Gare. Good luck with everything from now into the future. Stay nice. Awesome, man. Well, thanks, thanks for having me. It was, good, it was a good time. So there you have it. A super nice talk with super nice Kare Andrews. What a smart guy, right? I mean, aren't you, are you, have you, have you ordered his stuff yet? Come on. You got to check out his work. You just listened to him for an hour and you know that he's an interesting, super creative person, super inspiring. You got to go to, to do the next thing, which is collect his work, right? Just saying. If you collect something by Kare and you're like, this just blows, I hate this, 
cool. Guess what? Super nice club will buy it from you for what you paid for it. All right. So that's your, that's your guarantee. So check his stuff out. If you don't like it, we'll buy it back from you. All right. That's a super nice guest guarantee because we're confident that the people we bring in here are kind of like the best. They kind of kick ass and Kari kind of seriously kicks ass. So I got a question for you. What's your favorite episode of the podcast? Was this it? Is there another one? I want to know. Can you let us know in the form of a review, maybe, on Apple Podcasts or wherever? I'd appreciate it because it makes a big difference. And subscribe. Subscribe to Nice Work Podcast, too. Please, pretty please. Just do the clickety things wherever it takes you to, to make the subscription thing work. I don't know. There's so many podcast players. It works so many different ways. But you're listening now, so clearly you've got it figured out. All right. And thank you. Thank you for listening, for your support of this podcast, for being a member of the Super Nice Club, for getting behind the idea of making the world a nicer place because, damn, we need it. All right, next week is kind of cool. Next week, for the first time, we'll have not just one, but two podcasts, a special edition, a special edition that will bring you up to speed on the not-so-nice plight farmers are facing in India and how that's, that's kind of a proxy battle for low-paid and indispensable workers around the world. One of my, just one of my things I'm really passionate about. And so we're kind of, what can you do about it? What's the super nice thing you can do? Learn about that in the podcast. We'll also have a talk with Christina Wilson, aka Lady Wild Bones. She's an up-and-coming naturalist working in the Florida Keys. She's on the Discovery Channel show. And she's like best friends with all the turtles and the fish and stuff. And she's just awesome. So come back and listen to Lady Wild Bones. Until then, everybody, guess what? Stay nice.